Part two of Chapter twenty three of The Mysteries of Paris, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. The Mysteries of Paris by Eugène Sue, Volume One. Chapter twenty three. A House in the Rue du Temple. Part two. Rudolph started at these words. His dearest friend, the Marquis d'Arville, who was elsewhere stated, had been for some time labouring under a deep melancholy none could penetrate, lived in the very place just mentioned by Madame Pipelet. Could this mysterious female in the blue fiacre be the Marquise d'Arville? And was it from the lightness and frivolity of her conduct that the mind of her excellent husband was bowed down by doubts and misgivings? These painful suggestions crowded on Rudolph's mind, but although well acquainted with all the various guests received by the Marquise, he could recollect no one answering the description of the Commandant, added to which any female might have taken a hackney-coach from that spot without necessarily living in the street. There was really nothing to identify the unknown of the blue fiacre with Madame d'Arville, and yet a thousand vague fears and painful suspicions crossed his mind. His uneasy manner and deep abstraction did not escape the porteress. Uh, "'What are you thinking of, sir?' asked she at length. "'I was wondering what could have induced the lady, after coming to the very door, to change her mind so suddenly.' Oh, "'There's no saying. Some sudden thought, dread or fear, for we poor women are but weak, cowardly things,' said the porteress, assuming a timid, frightened manner. "'Well!' "'I think if it had been myself now, coming secretly to visit Alfred, "'I should have had to try back a great many times "'before I could have screwed up my courage to venture in. "'But then, as for visiting your great dons in this kind of way, "'I never could have done such a thing. "'No, never. "'I'm sure there's nobody under the face of heaven "'can say I ever given the least freedom. "'I should think not, indeed, while my poor dear old darling of a husband is left. Um, no doubt, uh, no doubt, Madame Pipelet. But about the young person you were describing in the blue fiacre. Oh, mind, I don't know whether she was young or old. I couldn't even catch a glimpse of the tip of her nose. All I can say is, she went as she came, and that is all about it. As for Alfred and me, we were better pleased than if we had found ten francs. Uh, why so? by enjoying the rage and confusion of the commandant when he found himself a third time disappointed. But instead of going and telling him at once that his madame had been and gone, we allowed him to fume and fret for a whole hour. Then I went softly upstairs with only my list slippers on. I reached his door, which I found half shut. As I pushed against it, it creaked. The staircase is as black as night, and the entrance of the apartment quite as obscure. "'Scarcely had I crept into the room "'when the commandant caught me in his arms, "'saying in a languishing voice, "'My dearest angel, what makes you so late?' "'Spite of the serious nature of thoughts "'crowding upon his mind, "'Rudolph could not restrain a smile "'as he surveyed the grotesque periwig "'and hideously wrinkled carbuncled visage "'of the heroine of this comic scene.' Madame Pipelet, however, resumed her narration with a mirthful chuckle that increased her ugliness. <laughs> that was a go, wasn't it? But stop a bit. Well, 
I did not make the least reply. But almost keeping in my breath, I waited to see what would be the end of this strange reception. For a minute or two, the commandant kept hugging me up. Then, all of a sudden, the brute pushed me away, exclaiming with as much disgust as though he had touched a toad. How the devil are you? Me, commandant, the porteress, Madame Pipelet. And as such, I will thank you to keep your hands off my waist, and not to call me your angel, and scold me for being late. Suppose Alfred had heard you. A pretty business we should have made of it. What the deuce brings you here? cried he. Merely to let you know the lady in the hackney coach has just arrived. Well, then, you stupid old fool, show her up directly. Didn't I not tell you to do so? Uh, yes, Commandant, you said I was to show her up. "'Then why do you not obey me?' "'Because the lady—' "'Speak out, woman, if you can. "'The lady has gone again.' "'Something you have said or done, then, to offend her, I am sure,' roared he, in such a perfect fury. "'Not at all, Commandant. The lady did not alight. "'But when the coach stopped and the driver opened the door, "'she desired him to take her back to where she came from.' "'The vehicle cannot have gone far by this time,' exclaimed the commandant, hasting towards the door. "'It has been gone upwards of an hour,' answered I, enjoying his fury and disappointment. "'An hour, an hour! And what in the devil's name hindered you from letting me know this sooner?' "'Because, commandant, Alfred and I thought we would spare you as long as we could the tidings of this third breakdown.' which we fancied might be too much for you. Come, thinks I, there is something to make you remember flinging me out of your arms as though it made you seek to touch me. Be gone, called the commandant. You hideous old hag! You can neither say nor do the thing that is right. And with this he pulled off his dressing gown and threw his beautiful Greek cap, made of velvet embroidered with gold, on the ground. Oh, it was a real shame, for the cap was a downright beauty, and as for the dressing-gown, oh, my, it would set anybody longing. Meanwhile, the commandant kept pacing the room, with his eyes glaring like a wild beast, and glowing like two glow-worms. But were you not afraid of losing his employ? He knew too well what he was about for that. We had him in a fix. We knew where his madame lived, and had he said anything to us, we should have threatened to expose the whole affair. And who do you think for his beggarly twelve francs would have undertaken to attend to his rooms? A stranger? No. That we would have prevented. We would soon have made the place too hot for old any person he might appoint. Poor shabby fellow that he is. What do you think? He actually had the meanness to examine his wood and put out the quantity he should allow to be burnt while he was away. He's nothing but an upstart, I'm sure, and nobody who has suddenly tumbled into money does not know how to spend properly. A rich man's head and a beggar's body, and squanders with one hand and nips and pinches with the other. I do not wish him any harm, but it amuses me intensely to think how he's been befooled and he will go on believing and expecting from day to day, because he is too vain to imagine his being laughed at. At any rate, if the lady ever comes in reality, I will let my friend the oyster-woman next door know. She enjoys a joke as well as I do, 
and it's quite as curious as myself to find out what sort of person she is, whether fair or dark, pretty or plain. And who knows? This woman may be cheating some easy-going simpleton of a husband for the sake of our two-penny-eight-me of a commandant. <laughs> well, that's no concern of mine, but I'm sorry, too, for the poor dear deceived individual, whoever he may be. Oh, dear me, dear me, my pot is boiling over. Excuse me a minute, I must just look to it. Oh, it is time Alfred was in, for dinner's quite ready. And tripe, you know, should never be kept waiting. This tripe is done to a turn. Do you prefer the thick or the thin tripe? Alfred likes it thick. The poor darling's been sadly out of spirits lately, and they got this dainty dish to cheer him up a bit, for, as Alfred says himself, for a bribe of good thick tripe he would betray france itself his beloved france <laughs> yes the dear old pet would change his country for such fine fat tripe as this he would while madame pipelet was thus delivering her domestic harangue upon the virtues of tripe and the powerful influence it possessed over even the patriotism of her husband rudolph was buried in the deepest and most sombre reflections the female whose visit to the house had just been detailed be she the Marquise d'Arville, or any other individual, had evidently long struggled with her imprudence ere she had brought herself to grant a first and second rendezvous, then, terrified at the probable consequences of her imprudence, a salutary remorse had, in all probability, prevented her from fulfilling her dangerous engagement. It might be that the fine person this Monsieur Charles was described as possessing had captivated the senses of Madame d'Arville whom Rudolph knew well as a woman of deep feeling, high intellect, and superior taste, of an elevated turn of mind, and a reputation unsullied by the faintest breath of slander. After long and mature consideration, he succeeded in persuading himself that the wife of his friend had nothing to do with the unknown female in the blue fiacre. Madame Pipelet, having completed her culinary arrangements, resumed her conversation with Rudolph. "'And uh, who lives on the second floor?' inquired he of the portress. "'Well, Mother Bourette does. A most wonderful woman at fortune-telling. Bless you, she can read in your hand the same as a book. And many quite first-rate people come to her to have the cards consulted, when they're anxious about any particular matter. She earns her weight in gold. <laughs> and that's not a trifle, cause she's a rare bundle of an old body.' However, telling fortunes is only one of her means of gaining a livelihood. Why, uh, what does she do besides? She keeps what you would call a pawnbroker's shop upon a small scale. I see. Your second-floor lodger lends out again the money she derives from her skill at foretelling events by reading the cards. Exactly so. Only she is cheaper and more easy to deal with than the regular pawnbrokers. She does not confuse you with a heap of paper tickets and duplicates. Nothing of the sort. Now, suppose someone brings Mother Burette a shirt worth three francs. Well, she lends ten sous upon condition of being paid twenty at the end of the week. Otherwise, she keeps the shirt forever. That's simple enough, is it not? Always in round figures, you see. A child could understand it. And the odd things she has brought her as pledges you would scarcely believe. You can hardly guess what she sometimes asked to lend upon. I saw her once advance money on a grey parrot that swore like a trooper. <laughs> the blackguard did. Uh, a parrot? 
"'But to what amount did she advance money?' <laughs> "'I'll tell you. The parrot was well known. It belonged to a Madame Merbelot, the widow of a factor living close by, and it was also well understood that Madame Herbelot valued the parrot as much as she did her life. Well, Mother Burette says to her, "'I will lend you ten francs upon your bird, but if by this day week, at twelve o'clock, I do not receive twenty francs with interest, and it would amount to that in round numbers,' "'If I am not paid my twenty francs with the expense of his keep, "'I shall give your Polly a trifling dose of arsenic mixed with his food. "'She knew her customer well, bless you. <laughs> "'However, by this threat, Mother Burette received her twenty francs at the end of seven days, "'and Madame Herbelot got back her disagreeable screaming parrot.' "'Mother Burette has no other way of living besides the two you have named, I suppose?' "'Not that I know of.' "'I don't know, however, what to say of some rather sly and secret transactions. "'Carried on in a small room, she never allows anyone to enter "'except Monsieur Bras Rouge and an old one-eyed woman called La Chouette.' "'Rudolph opened his eyes with unmixed astonishment as these names sounded on his ear, "'and the portress, interpreting the surprise of her future lodger according to her own notions, said, yeah, "'That name would make anyone stare with astonishment. "'Certainly La Chouette is uncommonly odd, is it not?' "'It is indeed. "'Does the woman who is so styled come here frequently?' "'We saw her the day before yesterday, for the first time these six weeks. "'She was rather lame, I observed.' "'And what do you suppose she wants with the fortune-telling woman?' "'That I do not know, at least as to what takes place in the little room I was telling you of.' "'where La Chouette alone is admitted with Monsieur Bras Rouge and Mother Burette. "'I have, however, particularly observed that on those occasions "'the one-eyed woman always has a large bundle with her in her basket, "'and that Monsieur Bras Rouge also carries a parcel of some size beneath his cloak, "'and that they always return empty-handed. "'And what can these packets contain?' "'The Lord above knows, for I don't.' "'Only they kick up the devil's own row with them, whatever they are. "'And then such whiffs of sulphur, charcoal, and melted lead as you go up the stairs, "'and blow, blow, blow like a smith's forge. "'I verily believe Mother Burette has dealings with the old one, "'and practices magic in this private apartment. "'Leastways, that is what Monsieur César Bradamante, our third-floor lodger, said to me.' "'A very clever individual is Monsieur César. "'When I say individual, I mean Italian, "'though he speaks as good French as you or me, "'excepting his accent, and that is nothing. "'Oh, he is very clever indeed, "'knows all about physics and pulls out teeth, "'not for the sake of the money, but for the honour of his profession. "'Yeah, really, sir, for downright honour. "'Now, suppose you had six decayed teeth.' "'and he says the same thing to all who choose to listen to him. "'Well, then he will take out five for nothing, "'and only charge you for the sixth. "'Besides which, he sells all manner of remedies "'for all sorts of complaints. "'Diseases of the lungs, coughs, cold, "'every complaint you can name. "'But then he makes his own drugs, "'and he has for his assistant the son of our principal lessee, "'little Tortillard. "'He says that his master is going to buy himself a horse and a red coat "'and to sell his drugs in the market-places, "'and that young Tortillard is to be dressed like a page "'and be at the drum to attract customers.' Uh, "'That seems to me a very humble occupation for the son of your principal lessee. 
why his father says that unless he gets a pretty strong hand over him and a tolerably powerful taste of whipcord in the way of a sound thrashing every now and then he's safe to come to the scaffold as he is about the ugliest most spiteful ill-disposed young rascal one would wish to meet he's played more than one abominable trick on poor monsieur cesar bradamante though he's the best creature possible for he cured alfred of a rheumatic attack and i promise you we have not forgotten it yet there are some people wicked enough to-but no i will not tell you it would make the hair of your head stand on end as alfred says if it were true it would send him to the galleys why uh, what do they accuse him of oh i really cannot tell you i can't <laughs> indeed for it's so then we will drop the subject and to say such things of a young man upon my life and soul it's too bad pray madam people i do not give yourself the trouble of saying any more about it let us speak of other matters why well, i don't know but as you are to live in the house it's only fair and right to prepare you for any falsehoods you may hear i suppose you're sufficiently well off to make the acquaintance of monsieur cesar bradamante and unless you're put on your guard against these reports they might lead to your breaking off with him so just put your ear down and i'll whisper what it is people say about him and the old woman in a low tone muttered a few words as rudolph inclined his head he started from her with mingled disgust and horror impossible exclaimed he surely human nature is not capable of such crimes shocking is it not but treat it as i do all scandal and lies what did you think the man who cured alfred's rheumatism who draws five teeth out of six for nothing who has testimonies testimonials from every prince and king in the world and above all pace as he goes down on the nail would go to do such things not he i'll stake my blessed life upon it while madame pipelet thus vented her indignant opinion concerning the reports in circulation rudolph recalled to his memory the letter he had seen addressed to the quack dentist he remembered the counterfeited writing and the coarse common paper stained with tears which had well-nigh obliterated part of the address too well did he see in the mysterious grief-stained epistle the opening of a drama of deep and fearful import and while these sad presages filled his mind a powerful impression whispered within him that the dreadful doings ascribed to the italian were not altogether unfounded oh i declare here comes alfred exclaimed the porteress now he will tell you his opinion of all these spiteful stories about poor monsieur bradamante bless you alfred thinks him as innocent as a lamb ever since he cured his rheumatics monsieur pipelet entered the lodge with a grave magisterial air he was about sixty years of age comfortably fat with a large broad countenance strongly resembling in its cast and style the faces carved upon the far-famed nutcrackers of nuremberg a nose of more than ordinary proportions helping to complete the likeness an old and dingy-looking hat with a very deep brim surmounted the whole alfred who adhered to this upper ornament as tenaciously as his wife did to her brutus wig was further attired in an ancient green coat with immense flaps turned up with grease 
if so might be described the bright and shiny patches of long-accumulated dirt, which had given an entirely different hue to some portions of the garment. But though, clad in a hat and coat esteemed by Pipolet and his wife as closely remembering full dress, Alfred had not laid aside the modest emblem of his trade, but from his waist uprose the buff-coloured triangular front of his leathern apron, partly concealing a waistcoat, boasting nearly as great a variety of colours as did the patchwork counterpane of Madame Pipolet. The porter's recognition of Rudolph as he entered was gracious in the extreme, but, alas, he smiled a melancholy welcome, and his countenance and languid air marked a man of secret sorrow. "'Alfred,' said Madame Pipolet, when she had introduced her two companions, "'here is a gentleman, after the apartment on the fourth floor, and we have only been waiting for you to drink a glass of cordial he sent for.' This delicate attention won for Rudolph the entire trust and confidence of the melancholy porter, who, touching the brim of his hat, said, in a deep bass voice, worthy of being employed in a cathedral, "'We shall give the gentleman every satisfaction as porters, and doubtless he will act the same by us as a lodger. Birds of a feather flock together, as the proverb says.' Then, interrupting himself, Monsieur Pipelet anxiously added, uh, providing, sir, you are not a painter. No, I, I am not a painter, but a plain merchant's clerk. Ah, my most humble duty to you, sir. I congratulate you that nature did not make you one of those monsters called artists. Artists? Monsters? returned Rudolph. Tell me, pray, why you style them so. Instead of replying, M. Pipelet elevated his clasped hands towards the ceiling, and allowed a heavy sound, between a grunt and a groan, to escape his overcharged breast. "'You must now, sir,' said Madame Pipelet, in a low tone, to Rudolph, "'that painters have embittered Alfred's life. I have worried my poor old dear almost out of his senses, and made him half stupefied as you see him now.' Then, speaking loud, she added, in a caressing tone, "'Oh, never mind the blackguard, there's a dear. "'But try and forget all about it, or you will be ill "'and unable to eat the nice tripe I have got for your dinner.' "'Let us hope I shall have courage and firmness enough for all things,' "'replied Monsieur Pipelet, with a dignified and resigned air. "'But he has done me much harm. "'He has been my persecutor, almost my executioner.' Long have I suffered, but now I despise him. Ah, said he, turning to Rudolph, never allow a painter to enter your doors. They are the plague, the ruin, the destruction of our house. You have then had a painter lodging with you, I presume? Unhappily, sir, I did have one, replied Monsieur Pipelet with much bitterness. "'And that one named Cabrion! Oh. At the recollections brought back by this name, the porter's declaration of courage and endurance utterly failed him, and again his clenched fists were raised, as though to invoke the vengeance he had so lately described himself as despising. "'And was this individual the last occupant of the chamber I am about engaging?' inquired Rudolph. Oh, "'No, no!' 
the last lodger was an excellent young man named monsieur germain no this cabrion had the room before he came oh sir since cabrion left he has all but driven me stock staring mad did you then so much regret him asked rudolph regret him regret cabrion screamed the astounded porter why only imagine monsieur bras rouge paid him two quarters rent to induce him to quit the place for unluckily he had taken his apartments for a term oh what a scamp he was you have no idea of the horrible tricks he played off on all the lodgers as well as us why just to give you one little proof of his villainy there was hardly a single wind instrument he did not make use of as a sort of annoyance to the lodgers from the french horn to the flageolet he made use of all and even carried his rascality so far as to play false and to keep blowing the same note for hours together it was enough to worry one out of one's senses well i suppose there were upwards of twenty different petitions sent to our chief lessee monsieur bras rouge to turn the beggar out and at last he was only got rid of by paying him two quarters rent rather droll is it not for a landlord to pay the lodger but bless you the house was so upset by him that he might have had any price so that he would take himself off however he did go and now do you suppose we were cleared of monsieur cabrion i'll tell you next night about eleven o'clock i was in bed when rap 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 comes to the gate i pulls up the string somebody walks up to my door how do you do porter says a voice will you oblige me with a lock of your hair somebody has mistaken the door says my wife so i calls out to the stranger you are wrong friend you want next door i think not returns the voice this is number seventeen is it not and the porter's name is Peeperlet. i'm all right so please to open the door and oblige me with a lock of your beautiful hair my name is Peeperlet, certainly answers i well then friend Peeperlet, cabrion has sent me for a piece of your hair he says he must and he will have it as Peeperlet uttered the last words he gave his head a mournful shake and folding his arms assumed an attitude of martyr-like resolution do you perceive sir he sends to me his mortal enemy whom he overwhelmed with insults and continually outraged in every way to beg a lock of my hair a favour which even ladies have been known to refuse to a lover but suppose this cabrion had been as good a lodger as was monsieur germain replied rudolph with some difficulty preserving the gravity of countenance do you think you might have accorded him the favour not to the best lodger that treads shoe-leather would i grant a similar request replied the man in the flapped hat waving it majestically over his brows as he spoke it is contrary to my principles and habits to give my hair to any one only i should have refused with the most scrupulous regard to politeness that is not all chimed in the porteress i only conceive sir 
the abominable conduct of that cabrion who from morning till night at all hours and all times sends a swarm of vagabonds like himself to ask alfred for a lock of his hair always for cabrion oh monsieur sighed out poor people had i committed the most atrocious crimes my sleep could not have been rendered more broken and unrefreshing scarcely do i fall into a doze than i wake starting with the idea of being called by that cursed cabrion oh, i suspect everybody in each person who approaches me i see an emissary from my persecutor come to request a lock of my hair i am losing my good spirits my temper and becoming gloomy suspicious peevish and ill-natured this infernal cabrion has murdered my whole life and people lay heaved so profound a sigh that his hat vibrating for some time from the consequences of the convulsive shake of the head occasioned thereby fell forward and completely veiled his care-stricken features i can well understand now said rudolph that you are not particularly partial to painters but i suppose the monsieur germain you were praising so highly made up for the bad treatment you received from monsieur cabrion <laughs> yes yes sir as i told you uh, uh, monsieur germain was a delightful young man so honourable and kind-hearted open as the day and ever ready to serve and oblige he was cheerful and merry as need be but then he always kept his high spirits within proper bounds instead of worrying people to death with those unmeaning hoaxes like that cabrion who i wish was at the devil come come my good monsieur pipelet i must not let you thus excite yourself and who now is the person fortunate enough to possess such a pattern of a lodger as this monsieur germain seems to have been that is more than i can tell you no, no one knows whither he has gone nor are they likely except indeed through mademoiselle rigolette and who is mademoiselle rigolette demanded rudolph why she is a needlewoman also living on the fourth floor cried madame pipelet another pattern lodger always pays her rent in advance and keeps her little chambers nice and clean then she is very well behaved to every one so merry and happy like a bird though poor thing very like a caged bird obliged to work early and late to earn two francs a day and often not half that let her try ever so hard how does it happen that mademoiselle rigolette should be the only person entrusted with the secret of monsieur germain's present abode why when he was going away he came to us and said returned madame pipelet i do not expect any letters but if by chance any should come please to give them to mademoiselle rigolette and she is well worthy of his confidence if his letters were filled with gold don't you think so alfred the fact is said the porter in a severe tone that i know no harm of mademoiselle rigolette excepting her permitting herself to be wheedled over by that vile scamp cabrion but you know alfred that nothing more than a few harmless tensions passed between them interrupted the porteress for though mademoiselle rigolette is as merry as a kitten she is as prudent and correct as i am myself you should see the strong bolt she has inside her door and if her next-door neighbour will make love to her that is not her fault it follows as a matter of course when people are so close to each other it was just the same with the travelling clock we had before cabrion and so it was when monsieur germain took the room this abominable painter occupied 
So, as I say, there is no blame to Mademoiselle Rigolette. It arises out of the two rooms joining one another so closely. Naturally, that brings about a little flirtation, but nothing more. Uh, so, then, it becomes a matter of course, does it, said Rudolph, that everyone who occupies the apartment I am to have should make love to Mademoiselle Rigolette? Why, of course, monsieur, how can you be good neighbours without it? Don't you see? Now, imagine yourself lodging in the very next room to a nice, pretty, obliging young person like Mademoiselle Rigolette. Well, then, young people will be young people. Sometimes you want a light, sometimes a few live coals to kindle up your fire, maybe a little water, for one is always sure to find plenty of fresh spring water at Mademoiselle Rigolette's. She is never without it. It is her only luxury. She's like a little duck, always dabbling in it. And if she does happen to have a little leisure, such a washing down of floors and cleaning of windows, never the least soil or neglect about either herself or her apartment, and so you will find. And so Monsieur Germain, by reason of his close proximity to Mademoiselle Rigolette, became what you style upon perfectly neighbourly terms with her? Oh, bless you, yes. Why, the two seemed cut out for each other, so young and so good-looking. It was quite a pleasure to look at them as they came downstairs of a Sunday to take the only walk, poor things, they could afford themselves throughout the week. She dressed in a smart little cap and gown that cost probably not more than twenty-five sous the L, but made by herself, and that so tastily that it became her as much as though it had been made of satin. He, mind you, dressed and looking like a regular gentleman. And uh, Monsieur Germain has not been to see Mademoiselle Rigolette, I suppose, since he quitted the house? No, monsieur, unless on Sunday, for Mademoiselle Rigolette has no time during the other six days of her week to think of sweethearting. Why, the poor girl rises at five or six o'clock and works incessantly till ten or eleven o'clock at night, never once leaving her room except for a few minutes in the morning, when she goes out to buy food for herself and her two canary-birds. "'and the three eat but very little, just a penneth of milk, "'a little bread, some chickweed, bird-seed, and clear fresh water. "'And the whole three of them sing away as merrily as though they fared ever so sumptuously. "'And Mademoiselle Rigolette is kind and charitable, too, as far as lies in her power. "'That is to say, she gives her time, her sleep, and her services. "'For poor girls, she can scarcely manage to keep herself by working closely for twelve hours a day.' "'Those poor, unfortunate creatures in the attics, "'whom Monsieur Bras-Rouge is going to turn into the streets "'in two or three days' time, if even he waits so long. "'Why, Mademoiselle Rigolette and Monsieur Germain "'sat up with the children night after night.' "'You have a distressed family, then, here?' "'Distressed? Oh, God bless you, my good sir, I think we have indeed.' "'Why, there are only five young children, an almost dying mother, an idiotic grandmother, "'and their only support a man who, though he slaves like a negro, "'cannot even get bread enough to eat. "'And a capital workman he is, too. Three hours' sleep out of the twenty-four is all he allows himself. "'And what sleep it is! Broken by his children crying for food, "'by the groans of his sick wife tossing on her miserable straw bed.' "'or the idiotic screams of the poor bedridden old grandmother, "'who sometimes howls like a wolf. "'From hunger, too, for poor creature, "'she has not sense or reason to know better. 
and when she gets very hungry you may hear cries and screams all down the staircase horrible exclaimed rudolph with a shudder and does no one afford them any assistance truly sir we do all we can we are but poor ourselves however since the commandant has allowed me his paltry twelve francs a month for looking after his apartments i have managed once a week to make a little broth for these poor unfortunate creatures mademoiselle rigolette deprives herself of her night's rest and sits up poor girl though it burns her candles contriving out of one bit and the other of her cutting out to make up a few clothes for the children sometimes from the morsels left of her work she manages a small nightcap or gown and monsieur germain who had not a franc more than he knew what to do with used to pretend from time to time that he had received a present of a few bottles of wine from his friends and morel uh, that is the name of the workman with the sick family was sure to be invited to share it with him and it was really wonderful to see how refreshed and strengthened poor morel used to seem after monsieur germain had made him take a good pull at his wine to put as he used to say a little life and soul into his half-exhausted body and the surgeon dentist what did he do for this wretched family monsieur bradamanti said the porter oh he cured my rheumatism and i owe him my eternal gratitude but from that day i said to my wife anastasia monsieur bradamanti oh, um, did i not say so anastasia exactly that's precisely what you did say but i want to know what this monsieur bradamanti did to assist the poor starving beings in your garrets why you see monsieur when i mentioned to monsieur bradamanti the misery and utter destitution of poor morel by the way he first began the conversation by complaining that the raving and screaming of the old idiot woman throughout the night for food prevented him from sleeping and that he found it very unpleasant however he listened to my description of the state the whole family was in and then he said well if they're so much distressed you may tell them that if they want any teeth drawn i will excuse them from paying even for the sixth i tell you what madame pipelet said rudolph i have a decidedly bad opinion of this man and your female pawnbroker was she more charitable uh, very much after the fashion of monsieur bradamanti said the portress she lent a few sous on their wretched clothes every garment they had has passed into her hands and even their last mattress but they were not long coming to the last for they never had but two but she gave them no further aid help them poor creatures not she mother burette is as great a brute in her way as her lover monsieur bras rouge is in his for between you and i added the portress with an uncommonly knowing wink of the eye and sagacious shake of the head there is something rather tender going on between those two really cried rudolph oh, i think so oh, i do upon my life and why not why the folks in st martin are as loving as the rest of the world are they not my old pet a melancholy shake of the head which produced a corresponding motion in the huge black hat was monsieur pipelet's only answer as for madame pipelet since she had begun expressing sympathy for the poor sufferers in the attics her countenance had ceased to strike rudolph as repulsive and he even thought it wore an agreeable expression and what is this poor morel's trade a maker of false jewellery 
and he works by the piece. But, dear me, that sort of work is so much imitated and so cheaply got up that, for a man can but work his best, and he cannot do more than he can. Besides, when you've got to find bread for seven persons without reckoning yourself, it's rather a hard job, I take it. And though his eldest daughter does her best to assist the family, she has but very little in her power. How old is this daughter? About eighteen, and as lovely a young creature as you would see in a long summer's day. She lives as servant with an old miserly fellow, rich enough to buy and sell half Paris, a notary, named Monsieur Jacques Ferrand. Monsieur Jacques Ferrand? exclaimed Rudolph, surprised at the fresh coincidence which brought under his notice the very individual from whom, or from whose confidential housekeeper, he expected to glean so many particulars relative to la goualeuse. "'Monsieur Jacques Ferrand, who lives in the Rue du Sentier, do you mean?' inquired he. "'The very same. Are you acquainted with him?' Uh, "'Not at all. But uh, he does the law business for the firm I belong to.' "'Ah! Then you must know that he's a regular money-grabbing old usurer. But then let me do the man justice. He's strictly religious and devout as a monk, never absent from Mass or Vespers, making his Easter offerings and going regularly to confession.' If he ever enjoys himself, it's only along with the priests, drinking holy water and eating blessed bread. Oh, he's almost a saint in the strictness of his life. But then his heart is as hard as iron, and as stern and rigid towards others as he is severe towards himself. Why, poor Louise, daughter to our sick lodger, has been his only servant for the last eighteen months. And what a good girl she is! gentle as a lamb in temper and disposition, but willing as a horse to work. And he only gives the poor thing, who slaves herself to death for him, eighteen franc a month. Not a farthing more, I give you my word. And out of this she only keeps back six francs for her own maintenance, and hands over the other twelve to her starving family. That has been all their dependence for some time past. But when seven persons have to live upon it, he doesn't go far. Uh, but what does the father earn? I mean, providing he's industrious. Industrious? God bless you, he's always overworked himself. He's the soberest, steadiest creature alive. And I very believe that if he had the promise of obtaining any favour he liked to ask of heaven, it would be that the day might be made doubly, as long as it now is, that he might earn bread enough to stop the cries of his starving brats. Then the father cannot earn enough if he were to try ever so hard, it seems. "'Why, the poor man was ill abed for three months, "'and that threw them all behind. "'His wife's health was quite ruined "'by the fatigue of nursing him, "'and the severe want she experienced "'of common necessaries for herself and family. "'She now lies in a dying state, "'and they had nothing for all that period "'beside Louise's wages "'and what they could obtain from Mother Burette "'on the few wretched articles they could dispose of. True, the master for whom Morel had worked advanced him a trifle out of respect for a man he'd always found punctual and honest when he could work. But, ugh, eight people only to be found in bread, that's what I say. Just imagine how hard it must be to keep life and soul together in such small means. And if you could only see the hole they're huddled together in. But do not let us talk any more about that, monsieur, for our dinner's ready. And the very thought of their wretched garret turns my stomach. However, happily, Monsieur Bras-Rouge is going to clear the ass of them. When I say happily, I don't mean it ill-naturedly in the least. 
but since these poor morels have fallen into such misery and it's quite out of our power to help them why let them go and be miserable elsewhere it'll be heartache the less for us all but if they are turned out from here where will they go to truly i don't know and how much can this poor workman earn daily when in health and without any calls upon his time or attention why if he had not to attend to his old mother nurse his sick wife and look after the five children he could earn his three or four francs a day because he works like a downright slave but now that at least three-quarters of his time are taken up with the family he can hardly manage to earn forty sous that is little indeed poor creatures yes it's easy to say poor creatures but there are so many equally poor creatures that as we can do nothing for them it's no use to worry ourselves about it is it alfred and talking of consoling ourselves there stands the cassia and we've never thought of tasting it to tell you the truth madam people after what i have just heard i have no inclination to partake of it you and monsieur people must drink my health in it when i am gone you are extremely kind sir said the porter but will you not like to see the room upstairs i shall be glad to do so if perfectly convenient and if they suit i will engage them at once and leave a deposit the porter followed by rudolph emerged from the gloomy lodge and proceeded upstairs end of part two of chapter twenty three